Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I suspect almost everyone who listens to this podcast knows who you are. I'm nonetheless going to read a bio. And this is from your, from your book. Okay, so Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She's also endowed professor of public policy and public law and Paul W. Horn, distinguished professor at Texas Tech University. She's been named the United Nations Champion of the Earth and one of Time's 100 Most Influential People and serves as climate ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. Now, if that sounds like it's a lot of, of recognition and accolades, it's nothing compared to like read the full bio on her page because it's a lot more than that. And the more you meet her, the more well-deserved it will sound. And it's not enough awards. And I'm not just saying this. Uh, Catherine is lead author for the U.S. second, third, and fourth national climate assessments. As a non-American, you're a Canadian living in America in Texas. That's right. Thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) (laughs) She hosts the PBS digital series, Global Weirding, and has written for the New York Times and many other places, and is featured in all these places. Her TED Talk, The Most Important Thing You Can Do to Fight Climate Change, Talk About It, has been viewed over 5 million times. She's a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Astronomy from Toronto and an MS and PhD in Atmospheric Science from University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. This is nothing compared to everything else, but I guess that's what you could fit in an, on a page. And I really would love to get into, into your book. Uh, so the book is entitled Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And I'm going to add in what I saw as the core of it is it's saying what to do, not just broadly, but step-by-step what to do, examples of you having done it, examples of you having made mistakes. I have to say, I'm going on too long. I have a whole lot of other things to say. Oh, no, no. Tell me what your favorite mistake was, because those are some of my favorite parts too. When I saw you in years of living dangerously, I thought, well, she's making all the mistakes. She's like telling this guy these facts. She's like hitting him over the head. And that, it didn't turn me off to you, but I was like, well, she hasn't figured some things out. And this book is like, is when that must have been, that's not 10 years ago. That was five years ago. Um, when, when we actually filmed, it was probably more than five years ago. Yeah. So it was quite a while ago. And this book is, I mean, you talk about that in the book and you talk about a lot of what you've learned since then. And one of the main things that gets me is that the main focus for almost every, for most books that I come across on the environment is they really focus on facts and technology and, and the science and legislation, not about people, our minds, our hearts. And to me, that is the domain of what's going on here. It's, there are lots of people who have strongly held beliefs. They're not, I'm going to deny, I'm going to poke holes. They're acting on something that's meaningful inside them. And not addressing that, I think, is holding us back from, you know, the way I'll, I'll put it is that a lot of people have heard me say, I, I look for people who have experience leading, knowledge of science, and experience living the values that they profess for others to live by. And almost no one falls within that, the, the overlap of those three circles. And you're saving us. Your book is, to me, yeah, I put you squarely in that, in that range of overlap. That's why I'm saying this is uh, why I speak so highly of what you're doing. You've taken steps beyond what a lot of people have. And you've made the mistakes that everyone has, has, has made, but a lot of people stop at them. This is my read. Maybe I'm, maybe, maybe I'm uh, projecting too much. No, I think you're right. No, definitely. Okay. Oh, I have to mention. So as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, okay, I know that person. That person has been on the podcast. That person is someone I email with. And so podcast guests and people that I've emailed in the past couple of months include Jonathan Haidt, Scott Hardinieri. Was he in the book? I know. I mean, he put me in touch with you. 
No, I, I know Scott and I've posted about him on social media, but he was not in the book himself. Okay. I don't know if you mentioned Mark Turchek in the book, but you work with the Nature Conservancy and he's been on the podcast. Yes. I'm the chief scientist. Yes. Mm-hmm. Bob English shows up a lot. Mm-hmm. David Wells Wells hasn't been on this podcast, but we've emailed. Andrew Revkin's been on the podcast. Katie Patrick and I talk a lot. Uh, Bill McKibben talking and, and I talk a lot. Peter Kalmus and I. Gernot Wagner, which just had coffee a little while ago. Of course, you also hang out with presidents, Leonardo DiCaprio, Krista Tippett, and like others that I have not. But um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Thank you. See, I want to jump to the core of the book, which I feel is like what to do. And I think for a lot of people, they can use step-by-step instruction. But I think if you just jump into that, that's too, got to give it some grounding. Yes. Well, if, if I could, if I could sort of go back to the way you introduced the book and you said that it's really unique in terms of environmental books and that it's not just about technology or science, but it's about heart. It's about people. I would actually say it is not an environmental book. Mm-hmm. Because all too often, we sort of compartmentalize climate change as an environmental issue that environmentalists care about and the rest of us sort of wish them well. We might watch a few Sir David Attenborough you know, documentaries. We might support an environmental organization, but we see it as a niche issue. And the whole point of my book is climate change is an everything issue. To care about climate change, you literally have to be one thing. And that one thing is not an environmentalist. That one thing is a human being living on this planet. If you are that, then you care about climate change and you already have every reason you need to care. And for one person, that might be because they care about the environment. But for another person, it might be because they have military experience or they're a person of faith or they're a parent or they're a farmer or they love skiing, or they love fishing, or whoever it is, they already have the values they need. And this is the way I think about the book. I think about it like this. Climate change is the most contentious issue in the United States, and it has been that way for over 10 years. Right now, it's right at the top, tied with COVID. COVID is right up there with climate change as the most contentious issue. But if we can come together on climate change, what more could we fix along the way? So really, the book is about coming together, about bridging the incredibly deep divides that cross our society today, using climate change as an example, but then saying, hey, if we could do it here, couldn't we do it in other places as well? Now, you sound fairly upbeat about something very contentious, something that there's a lot of disagreement on. Is it difficult to be upbeat? First of all, I would say that I am relentlessly hopeful. I certainly have my moments where I'm, I would not sound upbeat. And as the book opens, you know, every single day, every day, I am called a fool, an imbecile, a greedy whore. Every single day, I get this type of abuse from people who are trying to stop climate action. And I will not let them stop me. The way, the example I often take is from amazing women leaders like Christiana Figueres and Mary Robinson. I see them as sort of unsinkable rubber duckies. There are people always trying to push them under the water and they refuse to sink. They just pop right back up again and they keep on going. And what is more relentlessly hopeful than a yellow rubber ducky? <laughs> so that that is really the model that I see for relentless hope and optimism with climate that is very clear-eyed that recognizes just how bad this is. And I'm a scientist, so I know how bad this is. I actually, one of my areas of specialty is methane emissions. So I know about the methane and the permafrost and the hydrates and the continental shelf in the Arctic. I know about all of the nonlinear tipping points in the climate system. I actually wrote the chapter in the last U.S. National Climate Assessment on all the potential really unpleasant surprises that lurk in the climate system, depending on how fast and how far we push it. I know how bad things are. 
But I also know that the future is not yet written in stone. I know that our choices will determine our future. I know that what is most at risk is not the planet. It is quite literally us, our civilization. And I know, in the words of the IPCC, that every action matters and every choice matters. And so what is hope? Hope is not a guarantee of a better future. Hope is not positive circumstances today. Hope is the tiny chance of something better. The small bright light at the end of the very dark tunnel that we are in today. And what determines whether we reach the end of the tunnel? It's us. It's our actions today. And that is why we cannot afford to give up. Now, okay, so I'm going to jump in with a question you probably get all the time, but it's, what do you actually do? Oh, that's a great question. I love that. (laughs) I do a lot of things and people probably don't realize all the different things I do. So I am a scientist. I'm a professor at the university. I teach classes and I love to hear from my students because they are so engaged. They are so motivated. They are so concerned and their perspective is so refreshing. I learn something new from my students every single day. And I say that having just graded a stack of essays last night. Um, I also do research. And my research specifically looks at how climate is changing locally in the places we live. I develop ultra-high-resolution climate projections for individual weather stations, for cities, for watersheds, for states, information that people can use to design resilient infrastructure, to prepare for the health impacts of climate change, to show why mitigating climate change is so important. And I develop this information, I disseminate it to all kinds of different people from state hazard mitigation planners in India to farmers in the American Midwest. I also serve as chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy is the largest global conservation organization in the world. A lot of people don't know that because they're very quiet, very below the surface, but they're working in over 70 countries around the world, putting into practice concrete nature-based solutions to help restore, conserve, and protect ecosystems and to invest in healthy agriculture that puts carbon back in the soil where we want it and helps farmers, especially in low-income countries, grow the food that we need. I am also serving as a lead author on the fifth U.S. National Climate Assessment. I think this one will be my last. I've been on since number two. I give um, about 100 talks a year to audiences that range from community groups and students to church groups. The talk I'm giving tomorrow is to 1,000 students in um, a small town just outside of my hometown of Toronto. I have a YouTube series called Global Weirding, and we're producing our fifth and final season this year, short videos that answer frequently asked questions that people have. I maintain an active presence on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I just started TikTok too. And of course, I just wrote this book that we're talking about, Saving Us. The book feels to me like it's it's a, a nice summary of everything leading up to it. If someone wants to act on the environment, if someone just doesn't want to watch it happen and wants to involve their community the TEDx talk is essential. I think everyone should watch it. And, we, and uh, if they haven't, they ought to. I feel like it takes the TEDx talk a little bit farther. And is that a great starting point for people? Yes. So first of all, I do have a TEDx talk that specifically talks about why climate change matters to Texas. But it's my TED talk, I think you're referring to, that talks about how the most important thing we can do is, is to use our voice to talk about yes. it. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So when it comes to climate change, 70% of people in the United States are already worried. 
83% of moms are already worried about climate change in the U.S. 84% of young people in 10 countries around the world are worried. So the majority of us are already worried. We don't need more fear-based facts. So why aren't we working towards action? Why aren't we doing more? It's because fully half of us feel hopeless and helpless when climate change comes up. We don't know what to do, and we don't know how to fix it. And that's why I wrote my book. Because I mentioned I give dozens of talks a year, over 100 a year, and I've done so for the last few years, most of those virtual talks. And being a scientist, I collect all the questions people ask me, and I analyze them to see which are the most frequently asked questions. And it didn't take a lot of analysis to figure out, starting about four or five years ago, that the number one question that I was getting from anyone I spoke to, it could be young people or senior citizens, it could be a community group or an academic group, it could be business people or a faith-based organization. No matter who I was speaking to, the number one question that I would get from almost anyone was this, what gives you hope? And then the second question following right on its heels was, how do I talk about this to my colleague, my family member, my neighbor, person I know, the person I work with? How do I have a conversation about this issue that weighs so heavily on my heart, but that I feel so hopeless and so helpless about? So that is exactly why I wrote the book. For everybody who's worried, but feels hopeless and helpless and wants to know, what can I do to make a difference? Well, first of all, we find our hope in action. When we act, And when we act together with others, that's where we find our hope. And what is the catalyst to action? The catalyst is when we use our voice. Show me a single action that we can do that is not expressing ourselves in some way, shape, or form. When I say voice, of course, obviously, sometimes we might be writing. Sometimes we might be posting. Sometimes we might be speaking. Sometimes we might just be doing something where other people can see us. All of those are ways to use our voice. And there is no action that does not begin with using our voice to show why it matters and or what we can do to fix it. And so that's why I wrote the book, to show every single person that they can do this too. And your book, it, I mean, it says what to do. It grounds in what to do. It It has a lot of psychological theory in it, but it's not telling, it's backing up what to do. I mean, the note that I wrote was, it's not spouting psychological theory, but experience having processed the theory. And you share a lot of the stories of when you said it and you fell into a trap of, but also times when you realize, oh, that's why this works. Like the Rotary Club, for example, or your uncle, your man, you talking about your uncle. We've all had these conversations with people who are just never going to be, we try and try and try and it's not going to happen, but there's so many other people to talk to. So one, I, I think that's incredibly valuable, not just to say, here's generally what to do, talk to people. I mean, the beginning of your book, as I read it was, I mean, I felt like you sandwiched it at the beginning of the book was saying, here's how to talk about it. Here's how to talk about yourself, how to talk about them or what to, what to cover. At the end, it goes into much more detail after I think you engage a person, even inspire a person. Then I think it makes a lot more sense to go into the facts and the science. Maybe I should ask you that there's an interplay between engaging with them, going where they are, but the science matters. But if you start with the science that usually is going to not going to work. No. So what's the process there? Well, worry is the wellspring of action. And if we aren't worried about climate change, we need to be. But if we're worried about it and then we don't know what to do, then we just sort of metaphorically go back to bed and pull the covers up over our head. We just can't maintain anxiety over something that we can't affect. There's just no point to it. So it makes sense to talk about climate change. But as I talk about in the book, not about the polar bears or Antarctica, unless you are a polar bear or you love Antarctica. 
But somebody once asked me, actually just not that long ago, after I wrote the book, they said, how do you talk about polar bears in Iowa? And I said, you don't. You talk about corn, you talk about floods, and you talk about wind energy. That's how you talk about climate change in Iowa. How do you talk about climate change in California? You talk about air quality and wildfires and solar energy. How do you talk about it in Texas? You talk about hurricanes and you talk about heat and you talk about drought and you talk about heavy rainfall and you talk about the crazy ice storm in our power grid and you talk about how we lead the U.S. in wind energy and we're moving up on solar too. So making it local, making it personal, making it here and now, bringing in the science, but making that science relevant to people's lives. Because as I talk about in the book, the biggest problem we have today is not lack of education on the science. It is psychological distance and solution aversion. We don't understand how it matters to us here and now in ways that are relevant to our lives. That's psychological distance. And we don't think there's anything positive or constructive we can do to fix it. So when we talk about climate change, the two most important things to talk about are how it matters here and now in ways that are relevant to us and what are positive, constructive things that we can do to fix it. And when I say we, I mean at every level. I mean, obviously, individual actions, also actions we can take with our family. How about the school we attend or our child's school or our place of work? How about an organization that we're part of? How about, you know, we could be part of a sports team. We could be part of a community organization like the Rotary Club. We could be part of a community of faith. Whoever we are, we are part of communities of people. And together, working together, adding our hands to that boulder of climate action makes it go faster down the hill. And how do we activate that? How do we catalyze that action? It's when we use our voice to connect the values that we share with others as an individual, as a family, living in the place where we live, you know, working at the place we work at, attending or being part of the group that we're part of. Connect our values, our pre-existing values to climate change and talk about positive, constructive solutions that we can all do together. The biggest word I heard there was values and the values that we share, connecting on values. And you know, one of the big things for me is that, I mean, I have a background in application physics, but I don't look at, science doesn't tell us our values. And I think a lot of people think it does. And if, but if we, like efficiency is not a value. I mean, people can make it that, act as if it is. And different people have different values. I mean, we tend to, I think we generally all value clean air, clean water, clean land. Although there may be other values that, that we feel supersede them in the moment. Can you talk more about values? Absolutely. The way I think about it is science is a compass that can tell us which way is north, south, or east or west. But how do we know which way to go? We need a map. The map tells us what lies in each direction. The map is our values and science is the compass. So with science, it can tell us that climate is changing. It can tell us that humans really are responsible. We have checked, and it is not a natural cycle. It is not volcanoes. It's not the sun. It's not any other natural factor. It is us. Science can also quantify the impact of a changing climate per degree of warming on things that matter to us, like water availability or crop production or the integrity of our infrastructure or the risk of political instability or even refugee crises. So science can say that as the world gets warmer by one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three degrees or more, here's what's going to happen in every different step. But science does not determine what's dangerous. Science informs our decision, but dangerous is a value judgment. 
Let me give you some concrete examples. For the 70,000 people who lost their lives prematurely during the European heat wave of 2003, we had already reached dangerous levels of climate change. For the Native American tribes in Louisiana and in Alaska who are already having to evacuate their homes because of rising seas, sinking coastlines, and thawing permafrost, we have already reached dangerous levels. For the people who were breathing in all the choking wildfire smoke from out west this past summer, who experienced health impacts, um, illness, even death because of it, we're already at dangerous levels. So the judgment of what is dangerous is very much a value judgment. So where did the Paris Agreement come from? Where did one and a half and two degrees Celsius come from? They came from all the countries in the world getting together and looking at all the accumulated science of what would happen at one and a half and two degrees and realizing that, again, in the words of the IPCC, every bit of warming matters. The further up we go, the more carbon we produce, the greater the impacts. And the further we go beyond one and a half degrees, the more widespread and continuous and consistent and even overlapping the really dangerous impacts will be. So that's where the Paris Agreement came from. And it was very much a value judgment that was informed by the science, but based on our human perspective of what we consider dangerous. And of course, the problem is, again, for many people, it's already dangerous. And many of the people who are experiencing dangerous impacts today are people who are already marginalized by our societies already vulnerable, already impoverished, already can't put enough food on the table, don't have a safe place for their family to live, can't send their kids to school, um, don't have the access to the same rights that many of us have. So climate change is profoundly unfair. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. And for me as a Christian, that hits directly to the heart of my values. And that is, to be totally honest, why I am a climate scientist is because of the connection between my values and the science. I've gone in an opposite direction of of why I care so much about Christianity, evangelism, political conservatives is is that they are actually want to. I've had a lot of them on on the podcast, and it's, it's a strong direction for me to go in is to talk with the people. It began with following Jonathan Haidt of uh, talking to people I disagree with, learning where they're coming from, and something that's made a big difference for me when I talk to environmentalists. There's a lot of there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of desperation. There's a lot of telling people what to do. When I talk to Christians and religious of of all stripes, it's much more, the emotions tend to be of hope and joy and uh, service, humility. And that's how I feel about my work. I emotionally resonate much more with people of faith. And I actually identify a lot of faith in, in my work. I don't have knowledge or expectation or proof that what I do will work. I have faith that it will work. And I I hope that it will work. I expect it will work also. And I have to say, talking to and the military, talking to going up to West Point and doing a lot of work there, that's where stewardship and the meaning of dominion came into my, not just my awareness, but my practice. And that's why I often view you as potentially one of the most influential people. You already are one of the more influential people, but that voice and to be able to reach a community that is a large set of communities, I shouldn't say one community, that I think a lot of people write off as, as the adversary or, you know, or impossible. But I think I actually see as maybe not the best metaphor, but a wildfire waiting to catch and, and, and sweep across this country of really embracing stewardship with a joy and a passion and a fervor and a, and a 
sense of service that I can't wait to happen and to help make happen or to help lead. Well, I just love that you said that. And of course, I completely agree. But for anybody who's listening, who is saying, what on earth are you talking about? Don't you know that those evangelicals are the most strident opponents to climate action? I want to just clarify what religion means in America right now. And it's this. Since the dawn of the country itself, the American Revolution, there has been an increasing synthesis between um, the Christian faith and politics in America. It began when people were detaching themselves from churches that were traditionally housed in the UK. You know, after the American Revolution, people didn't want to be Anglican anymore because the queen was the head, or the king was the head of the church. So they began to detach themselves for political reasons. And then this progressed through until the 1980s when there was a deliberate and concerted effort to take conservative theology and unite it and merge it with conservative politics to the extent where now those seeds have come into full flower. And for many people in the United States today, their statement of faith, so to speak, of what they believe, is written primarily by their political ideology and only a very distant second by their theology. And if the two come into conflict, they will go with political ideology over theology. And there was a recent survey that just came out, and there was a really excellent article in The Atlantic about this too, talking about how more people call themselves evangelicals today than they did 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, when you ask people who call themselves evangelicals, how often do you go to church? Which is just sort of a simple measure of how do people engage with their faith, right? 88% of people who identified as evangelical 10 years ago said they went to church fairly regularly. You know what happens today? Only 60% of people who identify as evangelical go to church regularly. 40% don't. And when, when they survey pastors, a lot of pastors and ministers across churches in America have said that they have had people leaving their congregation because their congregation and their preaching and their message was not sufficiently politically right-wing enough. So here in America, there's this huge, huge um, sort of confluence between what people are calling religion, but which is really nothing other than political ideology. That is all it is, is politics with some, you know, window dressing of religion slapped on it. That when you dig, dig below the surface, it has nothing to do with any type of faith. So what you're saying relates to what I believe true faith is. And we see this not just in uh, Judeo-Christian religions, but also, you know, I mean, I was at, I was just at COP26 and I was sharing the stage for a TED event with uh, two Buddhist monks. And honestly, I felt like we had more in common <laughs> with each other in terms of how we approach this issue of climate change and how we think about it and how we talk to other people about it than to those 40% of evangelicals who don't go to church here in the U.S. So from a perspective of faith, we know that hope, again, is not positive circumstances today. Hope is not the guarantee of a positive outcome. Hope is the chance, however small, that there is something better and what paves the way to that hope it's love. It's when we connect with each other as human beings, when we walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, when we consider others' needs above our own, when we relate to each other and when we understand each other. That's that's when we can change the world. And if you look at the people who have changed the world before, if you look at the Nelson Mandela's and the Martin Luther King Jr.'s of the world, they were flawed, imperfect people, but they were people who understood the power of hope, the power of faith, and the power of love, and they engaged that. And they inspired millions, and they ultimately changed the world. 
So, so that's why I mentioned earlier people who, a few women who I really take as my role models in climate communication, and Christiana Figueres is one of them. And after she shepherded the Paris Agreement to completion, rather than taking a well-earned vacation, if I were her, I would have gone back to Costa Rica and not talked to another human being for at least 10 years after that. No, that's not what she did. She went and she wrote a book that is the most relentlessly hopeful book you will ever read, and it is called The Future We Choose. And it imagines what 2030 would look like if we took climate action, how clear our skies would be, how livable our cities, how affordable our electricity, how much better our lives. And at the end, she says this, the biggest lesson we learned, imagining that we're in 2030 looking back, is that we were only ever as doomed as we believed ourselves to be. So when I look around and I see the hopelessness and the fear and the doom, I fight against it as hard as I can. I lift out my hand. I encourage. I, I try to lift people up even when they, they, <laughs> even when they attack me for doing so, which sadly many people do. I do that because I know that the only thing that will truly doom us is if we believe that we are doomed. As long as there is a chance of a better future, we have to fight as much as we can, as hard as we can, as long as we can, because again, climate change is something that stands between us and that better future. And when I say us, I mean all of us. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I feel like there's a, a long journey from your first taking a class in climate because, it, oh, that looks interesting, to the way you're talking now. And I think everybody, who doesn't want to speak the way that you just spoke? And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of action that, that made that transition, that, that not just talk or research, they're important and essential, but doing things and starting where, where you can, and um, which your book walks you through. So when you act on the environment, what motivates you? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I don't see it as acting on the environment. Yes, in, in your book, she clarifies Never. this. In, <laughs> and I walked into it. I would say, by the way, if, if you want to know what, the way I would think about it, I would say I'm acting on behalf of all of us humans and many other living things that share this home with us. So acting on behalf of living things is how I think about this. So when you think about living things, mm-hmm. what do you think about? I mean, that could be a lot of things to a lot of different people. What do you personally think about? What, what comes to your mind or your, to your heart? I think about who, what, and where I love. And that is what each of us can think about. Because if we think about the people we love, the places we love, the things that we love, every single one of those, I can guarantee, is being affected by climate change, either today or will be soon, and could be helped by climate solutions. And so what you love is different than what I love. And what somebody else loves is different too. And that is totally fine. We don't have to do it for the same reasons. We all have people, places, and things that we love. And so in my book, I actually talk through, I think it's chapter two, I talk through my own inventory. And I encourage people to do that. So if you don't mind, let me take you through my inventory. And then I would love if you could sort of took us through yours. And everybody who's listening, I want you to do your inventory too. Okay, so who, what, where do I love? 
First of all, I'm a mom, so I would do anything for a better future for my child. I love my family, most of whom live in Southern Ontario in Canada, and I'm from Canada myself. And I grew up running through the woods of Southern Ontario and swimming in the lakes, and that is just my favorite place in the world. And now when I go back there, I see that our lakes are much warmer than they used to. I see that wildfire smoke is choking the airs in a way I've never seen before. I see invasive species that are completely foreign moving into the area. I see wildfires threatening the forest where I grew up. The place where I love is at risk because of climate change and the people I love too. I love skiing and to ski, you really need snow. And I see that our winters are getting shorter. The chances of having a good Christmas ski season, especially where I live in Texas, we ski over in New Mexico typically at Christmas, it's getting a bit dicey. I love skating too, and I love skating outdoors, and yet I go home to Toronto and I take my son to go skating, and and, and the skating trail is just a pond of melted ice. I live in Texas, which is arguably one of the most vulnerable states in the U.S. to climate impacts. It literally puts the well-being, the um, health, and the um, jobs of people I know at risk and the safety of their homes, too. I'm a Christian, and I believe that we are called to care for and to love and to protect all living things on this planet, which of course include our sisters and brothers as well. And I also believe that we are called to be recognized by our love for others. And how loving is it if we just sort of put our fingers in our ears and bury our heads in the sand and imitate the metaphorical ostrich and pretend that this issue doesn't matter? In the book, I even talk about how I've started conversations over things that might seem really trivial, but things I love that are like knitting or (laughs) food or gardening or wine. So who I am connects directly to how climate change matters and what we can do to fix it. And that's my inventory. So I would love to hear yours. I'm going to jump into the front because you said knitting. And as I read that a couple of times, I was like, oh, my mom taught me to knit. So I I have not knitted in a while, but I know how to knit. And I got up to cables and things like that. And I was like, oh, should I... Well, I'm not going to do some of the things you suggested about knitting. There's something about the um, the stripes. The warming stripes. Yeah. And somewhere else you mentioned Ultimate Frisbee in, in some somewhere. And I was like, I wonder if she played because I used to play. I actually don't play Ultimate Frisbee, but I know many people who do. and that And that's a great way to connect. So I talk in the book about how with a lot of sports, like including tennis and running and um, football, they're having to take longer and longer breaks or even reschedule games because it's hotter and people are getting heat exhaustion. I talk or about move how, whole stadiums. Yeah, Sorry to interrupt. They, but, they yeah. had to rebuild a whole stadium to put a roof on it, to air condition it because it was too hot to play baseball in the summer in Texas. I mean, it's crazy once you start to connect the dots. Climate change is everywhere. Now I'm going to go next to my sledding hill and people who've watched my TEDx talk hear me talk about the sledding hill and how it's both more distant because they've they made the road better for cars, so it's safer. And if a kid who wants to cross the road to get to the sledding hill, it's a little farther. The winters are shorter. I have not, it's been years since I've seen a flexible flyer on sale. And it's deeply in my heart today because yesterday was my father's 80th birthday and I went to Philadelphia where I grew up and I went to the sledding hill and it was a gorgeous fall day and the trees were in full bloom. but it's there's litter that wasn't there when I was a kid. And I picked up multiple loads of litter, but then we also went, that's not where the, my dad had his birthday party at Valley Green. So those in Philadelphia know there's forbidden drive where cars aren't allowed. And I walked there, there was more litter, but it was a cool day, but not what it's supposed to be in November. But also I remember my childhood of how unbelievably gorgeous 
I mean, I don't know Ontario. I don't know that. I don't know skiing. I do know skiing and I love skiing. And I really can't go skiing anymore because it's farther. And I just don't feel comfortable about the amount of carbon that I, the pollution is going on for my skiing. But the freedom that I get while skiing, that feeling of the wind and everything. And I know that someone who's never skied, but they've surfed or they've you know, done whatever. The more personal we share our things, I believe that the more personal it connect, the more it resonates with them, even if they've never done exactly our thing. And I could also, you know, well, I'm, I'm a son, he's a father. We've had our frictions. And past bunch of times we've spoken have been in New York and we were up by Penn Station and in the city. And the last time we really spoke was walking around in the sledding hill in the park. And it's a completely different conversation when we're in nature. It's everyone talks about this. We ourselves are different. Our communication is different. Our connection is different. We lack this. I love cities. I love to go to the Met and look at the beautiful art there. Nothing compares with nature and, and, and just walking in. I wish I could express how it, this path by the stream looks and it's at peril. It's at risk and we can do something about it. So I, I, I'm glad that you said that, although I'm just saying what was in my heart yesterday? Well, that's why it's so powerful. It's because it's coming from your heart. Um, too often we just speak from the head and we butt heads. But when we speak from the heart, even if we don't agree with someone, we recognize that that's what's in their heart. And our level of conversation is completely different. I think refocusing people on the fact that it really is about saving us. It's not about choosing between ourselves and the planet. It's about choosing ourselves and the planet. In fact, if anything, the planet will survive fine without us. As we're the ones who needs the planet, who need the planet. So, so often we do talk, our conversation is a lot about what we're doing. We talk about what we eat or what we don't eat. We talk about how we do or we don't travel. We talk about how we do or we don't live. We focus on our, our carbon footprint. But what motivates us is what's in our heart, how we feel. And again, for many of us, you know, 70% of us, we're worried. We're worried about climate change and we feel hopeless and helpless um, to deal with it. So last semester, I started something new with my students. I'm always um, redoing my classes and, you know, trying to incorporate um, other activities or better ways of looking at things or different perspectives. The year before, I redid my classes so that the first module of every class now is about how climate change is a justice issue, how climate change disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people right here in the U.S. as well as on the other side of the world. And I got great feedback from my students saying, I did not expect this. This was not how I was expecting a class on climate change to begin. So that was what I did last year. But what I did this year was I added a journaling component to my climate classes. Every module, I ask my students, how do you feel about what we studied? What do you, you know, what emotions do you feel? How do you respond? I give them a couple of examples of things they can talk about, but I say, you know, this is really your time to talk about whatever you feel in response to the material that we covered this module. And that has just been amazing for, for me, I would say, um, reading what my students feel, just seeing how they react to all the information that we pile on in our classes, because that's what classes are about, right? They're about sort of like drinking from the fire hose, so to speak. But just giving them a chance to breathe, giving them a chance to reflect, and giving them a chance to identify very emotionally and very personally with the information. And so I hear a lot of stories about what you just said, about things that they did with their parents or their grandparents or their siblings when they were young, about things that they do with their children today, about experiences that they've had that they don't want to lose, about fears and concerns that they have for the future, about tensions that they have within their social group or their family. I think invoking our emotions is so strong. And 
I don't know. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear from you a way that that you feel like people have done it effectively. But I feel like for my students, journaling has really opened that door to helping connect our heads to our hearts. And it just makes a huge difference in how we process the information, how we retain it, and in how we act on it because we understand what's in our hearts. We've actually verbalized it and expressed it. And that's what truly motivates us to act. Those are very big things. And as a project-based educator myself, having people act on things personally is a big thing for me in the classroom or in in the courses. Uh, What I'm getting at here is a lot of people think they measure what they do against, well, is this going to fix all the world's problems? If not, well, it doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. And what I try to do here is to give people an opportunity to act on something that matters to them, free from wondering if this is going to solve all the world's problems, this is going to fix everything. Because I find that when people look at what they look at what they care about, they can always almost always find something. And the switch is not to whether it's big or small. It's whether it's intrinsically motivated or extrinsically motivated. And I generally don't know what their motivation is. And even if I know what their motivation is, I generally don't know what will resonate with them in their hearts to act on it. For example, one person I spoke to was from Kazakhstan. Turns out that's where the apple came from. He grew up near where apple, where humans first discovered apples. And he talked about that. And he said that both some of the apples there were some of the most delicious he'd ever tasted. And some have never made it out of Kazakhstan. So there's some that were unique to there. And some of them are now housing developments. And when I asked him to act on it, there's a whole conversation to it. But he came up with taking taxis less. Now, I could never have come up with taking taxis less from apples. But that's what worked for him. And that was in his heart acting on what mattered to him. Now, if I said to you, you know, apples in Kazakhstan are at risk, you should do something about that. You probably wouldn't react as much as he would. Well, that, that's the whole point of my book. The whole point of my book, as you know, is bond over a value you already have and already share. That's step number one. Step number two, connect the dots to how climate change affects what you already care about. And for you, for him, it was apples in Kazakhstan. For you, it's your sledding hill. For me, it might be, you know, my child's health. Connect the dots to how climate change affects something you're already passionate about. And then step number three is identify something positive and constructive that you can do because what you do, as I talk about in the book, what you do changes you and it changes people around you. Small actions add up and they're cumulative. And so what you just described with the apple tree and then taking taxis less, the missing step was connecting the dots, right? Between the apple trees, um, why we care and how we can make a difference. That's exactly the model I talk about in my book. And so for everybody, Again, whoever they are, you care about something. You you love a, pe- a place, you love people, you love things. And so identify what it is that you love, like sort of that inventory exercise that we went through. Connect the dots to how climate change is affecting what you love. And then think of something that you can do, beginning again with using your voice as a catalyst for change. We focus so much on our individual carbon footprint when what is really, really most effective that stretches through time and space is our climate shadow. Our shadow is how we engage with and connect with other people. It can affect people on the other side of the world. It can affect people, you know, after we're dead. Our climate shadow is how we stretch around the world and connect with each other. And our climate shadow can be something that we do that other people see that we do or that we talk about. It can be something that we say, something that we share, something that we write, something that we create. 
something that we paint, something that we sing. We all have a way to share what's in our hearts. And I, I love the way you put it. What, what is our apple? What is your apple, so to speak? Identify what the apple is and then figure out how you can express your love and your desire for action in whatever way is unique to you to share that with other people and help them identify their apple and help them identify what they can do to make a difference. And in my book, I talk about how just before the pandemic, I gave a talk at one of the largest churches in Southern Ontario about why Christians care about climate change, not should care, why we already care. And if we don't think we do, we just haven't connected the dots yet. And then I talked about positive, constructive things that people could do. And so as I was standing by the door, as people were walking out, I heard one woman turn to another and she said, I've always been worried about climate change, but I never knew what to do. But now I know where to start. I learned that food waste is a big source of heat trapping gas emissions. So we are going to eat the Christmas leftovers. That's where we're going to start. So let me just tell you what I did last year as an example. So every year I do, I do two different things, and sometimes they just sort of come to me through conversations. Um, sometimes I have to sit down and think about what I'm going to add this year. And you're right. Every single thing I do for multiple reasons, and I do because it brings me joy. I do it because it makes me feel good, because it not only helps with climate change, but it accomplishes other things as well. So last year, one of the things that I realized was that and a brand new study actually just came out last year showing this, was that gas-powered stoves inside the home create enormous amounts of air pollution that we are breathing in inside our home. And I love to cook, and I loved my gas stove. And in fact, we were just moving homes, and I was planning to take my gas stove with me because I loved it so much. Well, then I found out that not only, of course, does it burn natural gas, which produces carbon emissions, obviously, but it contributes to massive amounts of air pollution. And children who live in homes that have gas stoves are much more likely to have asthma. Well, I was horrified because what's at the top of my list? My child's health. I do so many different things in terms of eating healthy and spending time outdoors and exercising and learning and growing and educating. I invest so much in my child. And there I was unknowingly polluting the very air they were breathing. And so I joyfully gave up what had previously been one of my prized possessions for an inductive stove, which was already in the house we're moving into. So I just kept that one rather than switching them out. I joyfully did that because it was so important. It, there was something that was more important to me which was my child's health, the health of our family, oh, and cutting carbon at the same time. So I think that's sort of what you're getting at, isn't it? Yeah, you've been through the process in your own life dozens of times, many, many times. Yes, and you're sharing what's what's come from it. I also am looking at the clock and I know that you have to get off uh, for something else. So I, I'd just like to close with, there's anything that you didn't get out that you'd like to say directly to the listeners that I didn't ask that's worth bringing up? Sure. Um, I think we've touched on this a little bit before, but I want to be very clear about this. Everybody already has the reasons they need to care, and they don't need to be the same as yours or mine. We spend way too much time trying to convince people to care for the same reasons we do. And, you know, if you're talking to somebody over the age of about 10, good luck. That is rarely going to happen. Whereas if we begin by getting to know them and figuring out what makes them tick, we can figure out what is it they're already passionate about, where, what, or who do they love, 
that is being affected by climate change that makes them already the perfect person to care? And what actions might they be able to get into? You know, maybe they might not be into reducing food waste or they might not be into, you know, switching out their their gas stove. They might be interested in the energy independence and the cost savings of solar panels, or they might really like fast cars and EVs are a lot faster than internal combustion engines these days, or they might be really into their favorite fishing hole or swimming or doing things with their kids. So whoever someone is, they already have the values they need to care. And our job is not to change their heart. Our job is to figure out what is already in their heart, connect the dots to climate change, and offer them something positive and constructive that they can engage in that makes a difference, that changes them, that changes people around them, and that ultimately, cumulatively, changes the world. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.